Okay, comrades. The history of the communist movement in the United States is fascinating, in my opinion. It's the history of the working class militant struggles. Before the communist movement, we were less organized, in my opinion. We were developing. It was sort of like a child growing up. I consider the socialist years of the left movement in this country the adolescent years, in my opinion. And the years of adulthood started, in my opinion, in 1919, officially, with the formation of the Comintern and the communist parties throughout the world that broke away from the socialist movements. So I just want to give that as a presentation before we go into this. Our party, the Party of Communists USA, I'm going to give a small introduction of how we developed and where do we come out from. We definitely come out from the Communist Party USA, which was originally called the Communist Party of America. And in 1919, the Communist Party, there were two forces within our party. One was based on the immigrants. That's why the struggle among immigrants is a communist struggle to this day. We came out of the immigrant movement that came out of Eastern Europe. It came out of Russia. It came out of Western Europe. They came to this country, uh, working class individuals who were active in the trade union movement in Europe and in the socialist movement in Europe. They came here. They were the immigrants. So the immigrants formed a backbone of one of the communist parties. The other one was native-born, people that were born here, English, Irish background, those were the people that were here already, and they were second, third generation, people like John Reed and people like Eugene O'Neill and those kind of people. They were the ones that formed the other Communist Party. The two of them were forced by the Comintern that if you want to be represented in the Comintern, you have to be one party. So actually, the Comintern served a purpose, among other purposes. One of them was to not have two or three Communist Parties in each country. For today, we don't have no common turn, and we have four or five communist parties in each country, which does not help us. I just want you to know, in Russia today, there are over 100 communist parties. That's shocking. In Russia today, in capitalist Russia, that would not have been allowed under the common turn rules. So each country had to have their own communist party. We all understand that as long as we're divided, we're not going to be that strong unfortunately. So we formed the Communist Party in 1919. The two of them were forced to join together by the Comintern, which was based in Moscow. That's the history of the PCUSA. That's our history. We made every attempt to go back to our origins, 1919, 1924, when they started the worker. We have that on our masthead. We were founded in 1924, the magazine The Communist, which hasn't come out yet. The last time we put out an ideological magazine was called Ideological Fight Back, and we officially changed the name to The Communist. That was founded in 1924 also. So our roots are from that whole period. I'm going to just give you the background, and I'm going to open it up to questions. So we come out of a pro-Soviet some of the communist parties split in 1960, and they followed Beijing, which was called Peking at the time, 
and there was a split in the world communist movement over the issue of Stalin, supposedly. It was over the issue of Khrushchev, denunciation of Stalin at the 20th Party Congress. And the communist movement split, officially, into two groups. Ones that supported Moscow, the others supported Peking as being the head of the communist movement. Mao Zedong tried very hard to bring everything to Peking to have that the center of the world communist movement. We come out of the pro-Soviet side. That's our history. The split, I mentioned, they call themselves ML. They took the term ML. So whenever you see a communist party that has ML behind it, it means that they were the groups that came out in 1960 and onward. Some of them didn't take ML. For example, the Communist Party in the Philippines. There are two communist parties in the Philippines. People don't know that. One is the original one, which is called the Philippine Communist Party, which led the rebellion after World War II against U.S. colonization and imperialism in the Philippines. The name of that group was called the Hucks, the Huck Rebellion. There's an excellent book on that by a gentleman by the name of Comrade William Pomeroy, if you're taking notes. William Pomeroy wrote this book on the Huck Rebellion. That was the original. When the split came in the 60s, a new group broke away, and they were called the Communist Party of the Philippines. They are the larger party now. They are the larger, and they are the ones that are involved with the New People's Army and the Rebellion. So the ML, after the name of a Communist Party, means they come out of the pro-Mao, anti-Soviet element of the Communist movement. So if we could open that up now. Just a comment. I think the reason for a lot of these groups that split off, like ML, as you mentioned, like in the United States, there's constant anti-Soviet, anti-communism from the mass media is just nonstop. And people from newspapers to the television, it's just the propaganda in this country, just a nonstop. That's my comment. Thank you, Cameron. I had a question regarding the Marxist-Leninist designation. You were saying that that was more pro-China and anti-Soviet. Is that true today of all other parties in other parts of the world? Would you designate the ML as a anti-Soviet and more pro-China? After the counter-revolution succeeded in 1991 in the Soviet Union, the banner went from after Mao Zedong passed away, in 1976, the banner of anti-Soviet, anti-revisionist, pro-Stalin went to Enver Hoxha in Albania. It stayed with him for a while until he passed on. And then eventually the people that took over the communist parties in each of those countries, what they did is they actually, all of them went to the right. Deng Xiaoping in China took up market socialism, his famous quote, to be rich is glorious. I don't know if anybody knows that's a famous quote of a communist leader. And, of course, the people in Albania, once uh, Invahoksa passed, they actually became out-and-out social democrats. That's what they became. But to answer your question, there is no party, none, in what came out of the common turn, those parties. There's not one of them that calls themselves ML. ML became automatically understood to be communist. So it would be redundant to call yourself Communist Party of Sweden, ML, 
because you already were ML. That's the whole thesis behind what a Communist Party under Lenin and Stalin was. So, yeah, unfortunately, that's the situation. And one more thing. What was taken from Mao Zedong and what was added to Enver Hoxha was the thesis of Soviet social imperialism, which to this day, the followers of Enver Hoxha, we call them Hojist, people like the American Party of Labor, APL, that's their position to this day. That position is that the Soviet Union was imperialist, just as bad as the United States. And when the Cubans went to help the South African revolution against apartheid, those Cuban troops were puppets of the Soviet imperialists. That's their position. That's not my position. That is their outward position. They still hold that position today. Thank you. I think you mentioned Southern Africa, the Cuba was involved in Southern Africa. You mean Namibia and Angola. Correct. When it comes down to it, given the fact that the Comintern played such an important role in uniting communist parties together, would it be a good step for a communist party that is based in traditional foundations of Marxism-Leninism to establish a common turn of a new type, basically, to unite the Marxist-Leninist organizations back together? Excellent question. Excellent. I'm glad you came out with that. I had a discussion with the Central Committee member at the Left Forum three years ago from the Greek Party. And what happened is, just let me give people a short, short, short history. When the common turn was dissolved by Stalin, in 1943. And when that happened, it was a period of the Grand Alliance against Fascism, 1943. We were allies with the capitalists in England, the ones in the United States, and in France. We mean in communists. It was the Popular Front. The United Front is different, by the way. United Front is just among workers' parties. Popular Front is that we work with the capitalist parties against fascism. That's what the Popular Front is, the essence of the Popular Front. So in 1943, the Comintern was dissolved. After the war, 1945, the end of the war, there was never resurrected again. What they did is they set something up in 1948 called the Communist Information Bureau, the Common Form. And who pulled out of the Common Form quickly? Tito. The Communist Party in Yugoslavia pulled out. They were called the League of Yugoslav Communists. It's interesting, they didn't even call themselves a party. They called themselves the League of Yugoslav Communists under Joseph Tito. They pulled out because there was a disagreement with working with Moscow. Tito was famous for starting something called market socialism in Yugoslavia. He wanted to work with the West, but not directly, not in NATO, but in trade and things like that. So the common form was set up. The common form never really was the same as the common turn. Not at all the same. Even the name, Communist International, means common turn. Common form was Communist Information Bureau. It's just to talk to each other. So we never really got that back together again. Under Khrushchev, in order to get unity, Tito was invited back again. I don't know if he did come back or not, but he was invited back again. The closest thing we got is something called SolidNet today. If you look, it's called SolidNet, Solidarity Network. And the SolidNet is nothing at all 
like the common turn. The solid net has in it parties that have rejected the hammer and sickle, like the Communist Party in France. It has parties that have outwardly worked with the U.S. imperialism on a certain level by criticizing the Soviet Union 1968, the intervention in Czechoslovakia to put down social democracy under Dubček, Alexander Dubček, the party in Japan, the Japanese Communist Party opposed that. The Japanese Communist Party is on record as opposing the DPRK, calling it aggressive. So the solid net is the closest, and yet it is far, far different than Comintern. There are revisionist parties in there. There are parties that are anti-Marxist-Leninist that are in there, along with Marxist-Leninist parties like the Greek Party, like the Communist Party of the Workers of Spain, and Communist Party of Mexico, etc., etc., etc. And our party, of course, we consider ourselves Marxist-Leninist. So the question is, is there a need for such a thing? And the gentleman from, the comrade from Greece, told me, at this point, and this was three years ago, at this point, we cannot call for that. And so I was with Comrade at a table. We were having coffee, and I said, why can't we? He said, because we're too weak right now. We have to wait until we get more parties that come back to Marxism-Leninism. Then we could call for such a thing. So the intermediary step was something called International Communist Review, ICR, which is an attempt. It's put out by... 15 to 18 communist parties that are Marxist-Leninist to have a center or a pole, they call it a pole, which means center, P-O-L-E. And it's a center of Marxist-Leninist communist parties within SolidNet. So there is no thing right now, but that is the thing we want to do. So this is the background that our party comes out of. We come out of the international brigades, that the communist movement sent to Spain to fight fascism and Franco in 1936. We come out of the hunger marches in the 20s and the early 30s. We come out of building the CIO, Congress of Industrial Organizations, as opposed to the AFL, American Federation of Labor. That's our background. There's a group in the 20s called Trade Union Unity League that was led by Forster, William Forster. It's the T-U-U-L. Trade Union Unity League and the Trade Union Educational League. They were led by William Forster of our previous formation as the CPUSA. And so now today we have Labor United in class struggle. In the 70s, the OCP put out something called Trade Unionists for Action and Democracy, TUAD. The publication they put out was called Labor Today. Does that sound familiar? Yes, because we did the same thing recently. We helped set up Labor United in Class Struggle, that puts out labor today. So that's our history. Our history is what we did in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s, and the 70s, and the 80s. That doesn't mean everything that the CP did during those period of times we agree with. The CP, like many political parties, went different directions under different leadership. Again, Earl Browder, very, very famous very positive element in our movement in the 30s. He wrote a whole group of literature. One of them is why there's unemployment under capitalism. Many people don't understand that, even people who are communists. Why is there unemployment under capitalism? Errol Browder wrote this great article. 
This is the same Earl Browder who went to prison for his beliefs because he was a communist. The same Earl Browder who, when he came out of prison, the first thing he did was force the dissolution of the Communist Party. What the capitalists tried to do for 40 years, he did in two weeks. So to put a label the way so many people on the left do, they have a tendency to make things simple, black or white. Everything is not black or white, comrades. There are many things that are gray, and they're gray for a reason. The reason why they're gray is because individuals took different positions historically at different times. The Popular Front was under the administration in the communist movement of Earl Browder. He was the general secretary. The party grew three or four, five or six times. We were influencing easily hundreds of millions of people through our mass organizations at the time. So that's what we come out of. That's our heritage. That's the political people who are our grandmothers and grandfathers, so to speak. That's what we come out of. How did everything change? Well, the biggest thing that we feel as a party changed was the problems that started with separating Comrade Stalin from the international movement. Again, looking at Stalin in a negative way, which came out of the Khrushchev period, looking at Stalin just positively as a military genius in World War II, but not ideological. That came out of the 20-party Congress. We see that as the beginning of the problems in our movement. That led to a reason why Peking caused a split, because they attributed Khrushchev to attacking Stalin, and they were claiming that Stalin was doing the correct thing, should not be attacked. So that was sort of what we call the thesis, if you remember this in Marxist philosophy, the thesis and the antithesis. And when the two of them come together, you get a synthesis. Or something else comes out of it. And this is what happened. So we see that as a real problem in our history, what happened with Khrushchev, denunciation later on, the split, which was led by Peking, international communist movement, we see that as the negative things that we went through. But that is still our history. We can analyze it in 2019 and see where we come out on this, but whether it's for good or bad, that's our history. The biggest thing in my understanding that was the final separation of our history from what we were and what we became was perestroika. That has not been really dealt with too much. And even in our party, it hasn't been dealt with too much. Perestroika. Now, it's a Russian word, and it means restructuring. The very term means restructuring. So it's an economic term. They wanted to restructure the economy. So they had an economy that was centrally planned. And they wanted to restructure that so that each factory would be able to compete against another factory that produced the same items. Now, that started theoretically under Khrushchev, but it never went too far because under Brezhnev, it, was, it went back to centralization. Also, I don't want to get into it now, but one of the problems during the Brezhnev period was the black market, which was 
one of the problems that helped bring across Gorbachev. There was a famous picture of him in a park in Moscow kicking a loaf of bread, a real loaf of bread, not full of air the way Wonder Bread is in this country, a real solid loaf of bread. Now, I was in the Soviet Union in the 70s, and their bread was bread. I mean, you could have a whole meal. You could have a meal out of two or three slices of bread, and you cut it yourself. It was thick. And jam or preserves or anything you wanted to put with that bread, that was a whole meal. So Gorbachev was kicking that loaf of bread in a negative way and saying, this bread hasn't gone up since 1919. It's ridiculous. This is Gorbachev saying this on the front page of the Times and kicking it like the bread was garbage. Well, you know what happened. Look at what he did then and you see what it resulted in. But the point is, perestroika means restructuring. Glasnost is another Russian word, which means opening up. And the two of them put together were the beginning of the end of socialism as we knew it. I'm going to stop right there. Any questions? Khrushchev would perceive himself not only as a military commander-in-chief, but an ideologist. I think that's really bankrupt. Because Khrushchev did not have any understanding of Marxism-Leninism to begin with. So Comrade Stalin was not only a military genius, he was an ideological genius. He applied Marxism-Leninism in the era of the post-Second World War, and his policy with respect to national liberation movements was Marxist-Leninist. And this was not done by Khrushchev. Khrushchev was... Actually, the idea of revisionism by Khrushchev is, I think, stolen from Marshal Tito. I don't think he has any original ideas or ideologies to restructure or to improve Soviet society in the context of Marxism-Leninism. He was a bankrupt pragmatist, and most of his ideas about the economic development or progress, he must have stolen from Marshal Tito. So I don't think he has nothing original to him. He was an agronomist by training, and I don't think he had any understanding of Marxism-Leninism to begin with. Okay, thank you, Cameron, for that observation. I wanted to know, what else makes Khrushchev a more of a revisionist outside of just attacking Stalin? Like, what was his policies? Because by what I hear, you said that the Soviet Union was still socialist even after Stalin's death. So I just want to know what the revisionism was outside of just attacking Stalin. What did he do that was revisionist? Okay, I'll go through that quickly. One of the important points, the legs of the building of socialism, is something called the dictatorship of the proletariat. It's an important term. And what happened during the Khrushchev years, they changed the ID from the dictatorship of the workers and the peasants to the dictatorship of the whole people. And the thesis was that socialism is developed now during the Khrushchev period. Well, socialism developed and we don't need to have a dictatorship of the workers and peasants anymore because now we have just the Soviet, the Soviet people. So that was one of the key points of what many people considered uh, revisionism. It's probably really important for communists and especially Marxist-Leninists to study the Gorbachev era for just the amount of errors that were made, not only on Gorbachev's part, but also on the part of members of the party and the way that 
sort of evolved from the Brezhnev era into the Khrushchev era? Yeah, I think that's important. I agree with you 100%, comrade. I'm glad you said that. I think we need to have more of these kind of discussions for the younger people especially and even for some of the older comrades who may not have understood what was going on at that time. But thank you. Do you got any speculation on why somebody, Khrushchev, Gorbachev, how do they get into the positions they get into? Good question. That's an excellent question, comrade. Excellent. I've been discussing this with other comrades, both inside our party and outside our party, for a long time now. How does somebody, like a Yeltsin, let's even take Yeltsin, how does somebody like that get into a position of being the head of the Communist Party in Leningrad? How does that happen? How could that happen? There's different analysis given to that. One of it is that such a thing called careerism, if you've never heard of it, comes from the idea of the word career, not K-O-R-E-A, that's my Brooklyn accent, but career, when you have a career as a policeman or a teacher or a salesman. So it's called careerism, and that is that people were allowed to go up the rungs of influence in the party because they were good at something in their job, whatever the job was they were with. And they wanted to get up higher and higher because there were more perks. There wasn't more money, let's be honest. There was not more money involved, but there were more perks if you're in the government. So that's why people were allowed to let ideology go out the window. Now remember, Gorbachev's wife, she went and had a degree in Marxism-Leninism from, I think it was a Moscow University. Yet, when she wrote her book, her and her husband, they said, we were never communists. This is what they said after 1991. We were never communists. Here she got a degree. How do you get a degree for Marxism-Leninism when you don't even know what it is? So the question being, again, how did this happen? I think there was a lot of reasons that. I think there was a lot of rot, R-O-T. Not a lot to the extent that the system was affected, but there was rot in certain areas. The whole idea of a black market, how did that develop? The whole idea of a black market, where somebody would work in a factory as a manager, making TVs or something, and then put one or two in his car, and then go into areas and sell it from his car trunk. That happened, you know. Things like that happened for a few rubles. So there was rot. I cannot tell you why it happened or the remedy for that. But I know that Comrade Stalin would have said that we need to put ideology in the driving seat. And I think ideology went out the window on a certain level where practicality and efficiency in a certain job became more important. That's my own understanding. I could be entirely wrong. So I went back to perestroika. That, to me, was the dividing line in the beginning of the end for our communist movement as we knew it under Stalin. Stalin built a fantastic house, which was, in my opinion, which was carried on by other leaders later on. When, in the 70s, every year another country was going socialist, El Salvador, Mozambique, other countries would claim they were becoming socialist throughout Africa and Latin America and in Europe. Stalin started it with the people's democracies after World War II in Eastern Europe. 
and how they developed, all of a sudden, everything comes crashing down. The Trotskyites blame Stalin. They say it was Stalinism that was built, not communism. The Maoists blame Khrushchev. They said he brought revisionism into the mechanism. I think that it's not one thing. I think it was a couple of things. I think to be dialectical, we have to see it that it was a couple of things. The lack of ideology. For example, when I was there in 76, the buildings had on them neon lights that said, Onward to Communism. That was on the buildings and skyscrapers. And I asked people that spoke English. They said, oh, we're just around the corner from communism. They thought, in their minds, they called it socialism that they had. They even called it developed. That was the term. Developed socialism. That's what it was called. They thought communism around the corner. Remember, 1960s, Khrushchev at the UN took his shoe off, and he was banging it on the UN, and he said to the people in the UN, especially the United States, your children, is what he said, are going to live under communism. That's a quote that Khrushchev gave at the United Nations to the American delegation. Your children are going to live under communism. They were so sure that communism was around the corner. Under Brezhnev, they continued that thought. The Chinese went the other way around. Think about what's going on in China. Chinese said, we first have to build capitalism. Think about this thought. And they claim it came from Marx. We have to build capitalism first. After we build capitalism, then we can go to socialism. So they took the road of Bukharin. Remember who Bukharin was, everyone. There were three leading figures in the movement in the beginning. After Lenin passed, there was Stalin in the middle, so to speak. To the left of him was Trotsky, and to the right of him was Bukharin. And what was Bukharin's claim to fame? Is that the NEP, the new economic policy, has to last 50, 60, 70 years. That's what he's quoted as saying. Stalin said, this is an aberration. It created the kulaks. It's created a middle class. What did Marx say about the creation of middle class? Marx said very clearly that when you create the middle class, you're creating the future capitalist class. That's what Marx said. Because the petty bourgeoisie strived to be bourgeoisie. And so therefore, after seven years, it was ended and collectivization and industrialization was begun. China basically has taken a Bukharan line. I don't know if you ever heard this from anybody. It's definitely not a line of Stalin. And it's not a line of Trotsky, which was permanent revolution. It's definitely a line of we have to first build capitalism for years and years and years to we'll begin. Meanwhile, while you're building capitalism, what does China boast? We have billionaires. That's what they're boasting. We have a big, strong middle class. That's what they're boasting. And there are people who support that in the left. People like Caleb Maupin. You must have heard of him. That's what he's saying. He's saying that. In fact, he wrote an article how there's no problems when you're building socialism if you have billionaires. He takes it to that extreme. So the point I'm making only as I end tonight's presentation is that the building of the communist movement throughout the world has gone through certain periods affected by the leaders around in that period. Okay, thank you, comrades.